This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. When WQXR broke the news that Anthony McGill would be the New York Philharmonic's next principal clarinetist, most of the attention focused on the political intrigue around the appointment, that he was filling a long-standing vacancy, and the perception that he'd been poached from the Met Orchestra. But there's also this fact. Anthony McGill, one of the top clarinetists in the world, will be the first African-American principal player at the Philharmonic. Only about 2% of U.S. orchestra musicians are African-American. Today, we ask why and whether McGill's hiring could send a message. We'll get three views, starting with Aaron Dworkin, the president of the Sphinx organization, which provides opportunities for young Black and Latino string players. Aaron, how significant is Anthony McGill's appointment, that one of the so-called Big Five orchestras now has an African-American principal? Well, I think it's a tremendous success. I think it is a great step forward in the field. And I think that one of the things, especially just from Sphinx's perspective, is that we want to make sure that this isn't just the rare occurrence that it currently is, but that we continue and that this is just the beginning of what hopefully is a groundswell uh, of building uh, inclusion in our nation's orchestras, especially the top orchestras. You had some pretty tough words for the Philharmonic in a speech you gave last October. You pointed out that the orchestra has not had a black member in five years up until now. From our perspective, I guess we kind of didn't really see it as as necessarily tough words, but we were really speaking to the industry as a whole, uh, obviously including the New York Philharmonic in that, but just talking about the fact that we do have not a kind of minor but a significant underrepresentation of our communities within the ranks of our major orchestras. And so our big goal is not to kind of, you know, fester about, you know, why and, and how did we reach this point, but rather what can we do moving forward. And obviously we think that this step and uh, the appointment of Anthony, who's obviously a tremendous musician, uh, is, uh, is a fantastic uh, step forward in that process. You also called on every American orchestra to devote 5% or more of its budget to diversity initiatives and establishing measurements for success. And you urged grant-making organizations to tie funding to improvements in minority recruitment. Would you explain that? Well, definitely, as we look forward, we think that the only way that true systemic change is going to be able to occur is if there are significant action steps taken. And we think that can't just be one orchestra. It can't just be orchestra. Um, that we think it also needs to be uh, those who are providing the resources, the financial partners of orchestras, and other organizations like SYNC stepping up and being part of the solution. So when we look at foundations, we think that tying their funding to results that relate to inclusion is a critical part of that. And for orchestras, we know that this is a tough problem to tackle. It doesn't just happen magically. And so major orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic, obviously are not in a situation where they do not want inclusion. It's just that it's a challenging process to be able to address. And so we believe that orchestras need to allocate resources to do that. And that's where we looked at a percentage of their budget. We obviously have our ideals from the outside, if you will, looking in. 
but from our perspective, orchestras do need to make a financial commitment, a resource commitment to tackle this issue. And that may come in the form of recruitment. It may come in the form of fellowships for musicians of color. That may come from looking at building the repertoire of orchestras. Less than 1% of the works performed by orchestras in America are by any composer of color. So it's not just a membership on stage, but it goes deep into the ranks of the music directors, the staffing of orchestras, all of these areas we feel should be addressed. And we think we can build on successes such as Anthony's appointment. Did any orchestras respond to your call to devote some of their budget to diversity and we are currently in discussions with several orchestras about in this specific initiative that they are looking to implement and to launch. So we're excited about that. We don't have anything, unfortunately, to report yet. But what we do know is that there, we ourselves are having a specific number of conversations with a group of orchestras already. Um, and we think that you know, within the next year or two, we will see uh, initiatives in place that uh, did not exist six months ago where we asked orchestras to join us in this effort to build inclusion. Let's bring in our other guests. With me in the studio, I've got Tammy Kim, a staff writer at Al Jazeera America. She wrote a big piece in March on young black musicians. Also with me is Bert Mason, the principal trombone of the Chamber Orchestra of New York and the former principal of the Greenwich Village Orchestra. He has also subbed with the New York Philharmonic. Tammy, you spoke with a lot of young black musicians for your piece. How much does the lack of African Americans in orchestras come down to kids' lack of exposure to classical music growing up? Obviously, the the conversation around funding in the arts and and arts education is a big part of of the conversation we're having right now, looking at the sort of back end or the final results of um, a career in classical music. Um, The young people that I spoke with in in my piece often spoke about the problem of both lack of, of resources to, to do their musical studies, but also role models. And I think, you know, the work that Sphinx is doing sort of, again, at, at the back end, at the point of entering an orchestra, you know, addresses the sort of role model question. With regard to uh, the initial exposure, um, socioeconomic reasons are often proffered to explain why there aren't very many minorities in classical music. And I think that holds to a point. It is also true that people without access in their families and communities, if they're exceptional, can you know sort of draw on other kinds of resources. Nevertheless, that initial moment of, of the public school experience is still cited by so many people who have succeeded in classical music today, um, and that you know goes all the way to the top. You know, people in New York Phil, you know, are very famous composers and conductors. So I do think that pipeline issue is a big part of this conversation, but it's not the entire explanation for it. So Bert. You're out there living this. What is your reaction to everything that's been said so far? Well, it's very encouraging to hear some of the steps that are being taken by Aaron and his organization. You know, music for African Americans has been more of an oral tradition from deep into history. For a lot of minorities, you'll either see them being more interested in jazz or marching band. It's an interesting thing. I mean, when I was in high school... You know, playing trombone isn't the most popular thing you can do. Um, but if you're good at it, it, makes you, it becomes a little more popular. I was fortunate enough to make um, the all-state bands and orchestras, the all-eastern bands and orchestras, which, ethnically speaking, was a pretty lonely experience. 
But in doing that, it's also an experience that you can take back to some of the people, friends and teachers that don't exactly understand what it is and kind of explain to them from a different perspective. I've had the opportunity several times uh, to play with the New York Philharmonic and again be the lone African-American on stage. And it's, it's tough because at that level, oftentimes they're not really looking at the color of your skin. They're looking at how you play. I think with all the influences coming up to get to that level um, is what some focus should also be paid attention to. When you're studying and dedicating your, your time and energy to this and you look around you, it can be sort of isolating sometimes, and that can be discouraging if you're not into what you're doing. Aaron, what's your reaction to that? Oh, well, I think, you know, definitely the sense of isolation that is felt by certain musicians of color, uh, and as Burr was referencing, can be profound. Um, and not only that, but one of the things that we look at is there's that reality, but then there's also the perception. So younger musicians coming up and or students in school, you know, what they're looking at is their perception. What does it mean to be a classical musician? And so then they ask themselves, is that what I want to be striving to do so that I can then be alone in an orchestra or alone in this particular setting? And so the perception often is even worse than the reality. Part of that is that we do have to reach a tipping point, which is why this is such a fantastic appointment. And obviously, from Sphinx's perspective, we greatly applaud not only Anthony, obviously, and everything that he brought to earn this appointment in this position, but also the New York Philharmonic and their steps and involvement in this appointment, because it's a leadership occurrence. And the reality is that the New York Philharmonic um, is a leader among orchestras in the world. And so when the New York Philharmonic does things that are successful, other orchestras look at that and they work to identify those successes and they try to emulate those successes. Tammy? I think another aspect that Aaron reminds us of, though, is also that, that orchestras, when they're looking to fill that kind of seat... You know, they're not motivated by, you know, sort of do-gooding or, you know, they, they want the best player. And they obviously had the opportunity to see how amazing he was right next door for, you know, X Anthony, number of years, mean, Anthony. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, but, but we should also think about, you know, what has been the sort of philosophical direction of the New York Phil. And in, in my view, and, and in like, for instance, in the interviews I did, you know, one of the people I was talking to a lot was Jerry Johnson, who leads Black Pearl. And she was talking about the fact that, you know, having a diverse orchestra is also a business decision. Um, it's about, you know, saving your orchestra from demise, you know, at the hands of a market that is not kind to classical music right now by many estimates and appealing to your community and your community is increasingly diverse. So I think it's good for the New York Phil musically, but it's also good for them perhaps economically. And as part of Gilbert's, you know, sort of vision of a new orchestra. If there are two musicians auditioning for an orchestra job, and they both play equally well, they both have strong resumes, the other players seem to like them both, should there be some kind of affirmative action to choose a musician of color? Aaron, what do you say to that? So that's a great question, and in some ways a lot of the potential contention and conflict in the field comes down to that. It's always good to project and say, well, what if we were in this situation, then what we would do? 
from Sphinx's perspective, we would love to just reach a point where the final candidates for any opening for an orchestra do represent a diverse group of cultural backgrounds so that we can make that choice. So we'd like to reach that point first. From Sphinx's perspective, we believe that there are additional aspects, criteria that should be involved in the orchestral audition process. And that first and foremost, the top paramount is artistic excellence. No matter what, that bar must be met. But there are a host of leaders in the field, uh, including Tom Morris and others, who have spoken to the idea that we have tremendous artistic excellence and where we are lacking in the entire field is in the innovation, in the creativity, in the uniqueness of interpretations that are being brought to various stages. And when we look at that, we think that innovation, creativity, cultural background, repertoire knowledge, teaching ability, that additional criteria such as these should be part of the audition criteria lesser than artistic excellence, but components, so that if you do have two equal candidates as you pose, and you're looking to see what you want to bring into your orchestra, that then you can look at these additional criteria and say, if we want to be an orchestra that's innovative and creative, do we not want people in the orchestra who demonstrate, who have those skill sets? If we want to have more than 1% of our repertoire reflect the broad cultural diversity of the community in which we reside and that we serve, do we not want to bring that knowledge into our orchestra if someone possesses that? Bert, what do you have to say to the question of affirmative action in auditions? From the audition perspective, I say when you make the final round, leave the screen up. It's, it's interesting that there's all this anonymity um, through all the preliminaries. They'll ask you maybe to send a tape sometimes. Even the semifinal rounds, um, there's a screen. It's all blind. Um, but then when you get to the the final round, everything comes down. I'm just and the anonymity goes away. If you want to be truly fair, make it completely blind, and then make an offer to whoever you feel is either the best person or persons, because sometimes they do trial offers to multiple candidates, and then make your decision there. Um, I hear what Aaron's saying and agree with a lot of it, but. I've seen several times where some of these orchestras, the screen comes down and they don't choose anyone. And um, it just begs the question as to, you know, was there someone that you thought was going to make it to that level and then didn't? So now there's, there's not anyone that's, uh, that's suitable. Tammy, you're nodding your head. Yeah, and I think an, another thing about that, I mean, without taking sort of a position on what exactly the process should be, is that a lot of people talk about how even blind auditions aren't blind. You know, in the sense that people who come up having the money and resources and access to study with members of the symphony that they're auditioning with, for instance, their teachers are sitting there, they know what their students sound like. And so, you know, I think that sort of looking at the different stages of the audition is very important, but there's counter arguments to all of the different formats that we can, you know, think about. And again, a lot of that connects to the pipeline issue and access issues before that point. And just to kind of pipe in, uh, make no mistake about it, we, as in the classical music field and orchestras, are incredibly exclusive, and we are all about excellence. You know, the average, you know, for example, admittance rate, you know, for Ivy League schools is, you know, 7 or 8 percent, uh, and in the audition process for orchestras, it's half of 1 percent. 
So there is no doubt we are mm-hmm. exclusive. When you get to that level um, of the audition, I, right. you're good. Yes, absolutely. And I think the question is, yes, we're about excellence, artistic excellence, and we are exclusive. But is that all that we are? And if we are more than that, then should we not incorporate those aspects into our recruitment and identification process for the musicians who create the artistry that our communities experience? Bert, you mentioned the loneliness factor. When you show up in an audition, how many players of color are there usually there? <laughs> um, Excluding <it's>... Asians. <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah, it's it's usually a, a very, very small percentage. I mean, usually it's me, you know, or, or there may be, you know, I have, I feel like I know all the minority trombone players on the planet. But yeah, even this is, and this is the, the, the point, I guess, that I was trying to make. There's, there needs to be, in addition to all of the, the efforts that are going on currently, um, there's some amazing efforts, again, which is very encouraging. I think also in the, the educational field, there needs to be a push you know, for the core curriculum to have more inclusion. I did want to chime in on the the question of organizations. Sphinx certainly is unique in the particular scope of of work it does. Uh, However, there are a lot of different educational organizations that focus on students of color and young people of color developing them in the classical world. Um, And I think, you know, it's interesting to think about the philanthropic environment and what it rewards in the sense that when you're doing things that are more at kind of an incubatory or introductory stage, it's much harder to sort of quantify what your results are and what your activities are. And I think that poses challenges for arts education organizations that are focused on people of color. Well, Sphinx got a $4 million gift last year from an anonymous donor. And do you think that orchestras might take a more proactive stance on diversity issues if they saw that there was the possibility of big money behind that. I think that's a huge part of it. And that goes back to the sort of issue of, you know, is diversity good for an orchestra financially? We do need to speak to their bottom lines. It's, you know, not just an ethical proposition. There's also a great lack of diversity in people running orchestras. How do you see that evolving? Right. I mean, we were speaking a little bit about the lack of composers and, you know, those programmatic decisions are huge. And, you know, so you're thinking both about arts administration and conductors. You know, who do people see on the stage? The magazine for the League of American Orchestras recently published a piece about the rise of Hispanic conductors, and there seem to be many more of them on the stage in in the U.S. That seems like a very positive development. I guess it goes back to the whole thing of affirmative action. And if all things are level, does it matter what color the players in the orchestra are? Sphinx, I know, talks about wanting a situation in which orchestras are reflective of the populace. However, it's true that not necessarily that everything in all sectors is going to reflect the precise percentages or fractions of you know, the demographic situation at a given time. And, you know, so I think that explanation in some, some ways have, has its limits. And I you know, I think there need to be other appeals. I mean, for instance, just the fact that African-Americans have made such amazing contributions to so many of our American traditions. And, you know, if we think about, obviously, jazz as a black tradition and our American classical music, that being a black form, and they've also contributed to classical music for so long. And so the fact that they're still not being represented on the stage is a problem just sort of historically. You know, and I think also just thinking about, what do audiences want to see? And, you know, 
what do they need in order to um, come back to classical music? Yeah, I see a lot of orchestras that have taken on arts and education um, and going out to schools. I think that's important to continue to do. And the schools that they go to is going to be continue uh, to grow in importance. That's the other aspect uh, is what are these diverse musicians doing for, you know, uh, a balanced audience? I think it, and I think this goes to really the crux of what we see, which is that this is not easy. In other words, uh, and I think that's why there's not a lot of organizations working in the space. And we have to balance the needs of artistic excellence, artistic merit, with the needs of our community. And how do we, yes, build and expand the pool, but at the same time have active initiatives that work to address what is this dramatic underrepresentation uh, of our communities in these incredible artistic uh, entities that serve our community and serve our society. And it's just what steps do we take to get there? Uh, and obviously, I think this step of the New York Philharmonic is a phenomenal one. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were Sphinx Organization President Aaron Dworkin, Al Jazeera America writer Tammy Kim, and trombonist Bert Mason. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.